Hey, podcast fans, this is Chris Webster, founder of the APN, and I just want to thank you for downloading this episode. Please consider becoming a member of the APN if you're not already and helping us make more great shows and get them out to the world. Head over to arcpodnet.com slash members or click the link in the show notes. On to the show. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Welcome to The Dirt, a podcast about archaeology, anthropology, and our shared human past. I'm Anna. And I'm Amber. And before we get into the episode, we've got some new patrons to shout out. So thank you to Audrey and Katie for supporting us over at patreon.com slash the dirt podcast. Thank you. And speaking of support, this week we've got a sponsored episode from Anna's mom. Mm-hmm. So listeners... Mom, if you want to sponsor an episode on an archaeological or anthropological topic of your choice, head to thedirtpod.com, scroll to the bottom of the homepage, and click the square that says sponsor an episode. And you too can be like Anna's mom. Thanks, mom. And listeners, I should point out that in addition to being a delight and a treasure, my mom has also strategically commissioned this episode. She's a professor of child developmental psychology and teaches various courses about the human lifespan, children and childhood and things like that. Yeah. So this is not only going to be a really cool look into something that until fairly recently has been underrepresented in archaeological studies, It'll also be a supplement to those classes. And it's not the first time I've provided teaching material for my mom. In fact, most of my baby videos are examples of classic cognitive tests, and I'm pretty sure those videos are still in use. So at least I have concrete proof on DVD that I figured out object permanence at the correct age. Good job, me. (laughs) So we're going to cover a few big picture concepts in today's episode. First of all, How did ancient people perceive children in childhood? How do we know how they perceived it? And how have archaeologists interpreted that perception? Because this is a big question. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Um, Because remember, the ancient past is often entirely subjective to the pieces of the past that are actually recovered. And the way these pieces are interpreted and that interpretation can change over time as we understand more about people in the past. So first... Let's do some thinking about thinking. It's my favorite. It's my favorite thing to do. I know. That's why I gave you this section. Ah, I love dogs and thinking about thinking. So we're talking about the perception of childhood in the ancient past. Are children just tiny adults? Uh, You may have seen museum exhibits or read in descriptions of ancient cultures that often children in the ancient past were viewed by adults as simply small versions of adults that needed to contribute to society. Um, The idea of childhood as a separate, unique time didn't figure in, and rather, childhood was a romanticized period that only became a widespread concept recently, within the past two centuries or so. Um, This is a perception and interpretation of the past that has quite the pedigree. So, um, Aristotle, remember him? Yeah, yeah, I I do. (laughs) Thanks for checking, Um, I guess. Aristotle, who published in 1934? No, a translation of his Ah, Nicomachean Ethics and the Politics. (laughs) 
All right. Those were published in uh, 1934 and 1932, respectively. Um, so Aristotle's work challenged the notice that the notion that children were small adults, regarding them as part of a community whose members shared common ends and worked together to achieve the higher good. He argued that children, unlike adults, are not capable of true happiness because they have not developed the ability to use their intelligence to guide their actions. <laughs> I'd argue the opposite is true. (laughs) Jeez. Um, Equally, their inability to realize the implications of their actions may lead them to impulsive and uncontrolled behaviors that have harmful consequences. Aristotle did not believe children should be left to make moral decisions until their intellect had developed sufficiently to enable them to decide what to do in order to achieve moral and social ends and to achieve the best conduct of which they were capable. Aristotle sounds like no fun at all. Just bad with kids, if nothing else. (laughs) Aristotle should not be your babysitter. No. Education directed at this purpose was to be delivered by intelligent teachers of high moral character who should have a sense of what children can and should do. All activities of childhood, including games and imitative play, should be directed at preparing children to become responsible adults with high moral principles. Real emphasis on high moral principles there. Yeah. (laughs) But as we've said before on this show, Aristotle was often philosophizing out of his butt. (laughs) I wrote that Thank in the script you, just for you. Uh, so his eminence as a thinker and philosopher and the Western European world's adherence to classical texts as a foundation for education might have more to do with this idea's popularity than anything else. Uh, and we're going to touch on similar things in Dirt After Dark this month. Oh, is there actual evidence from this from the historical and archaeological record that shows that childhood was just viewed as a stage of adulthood? Stay tuned. <laughs> Stay tuned. <laughs> like, I don't know. <laughs> In credits. Yeah. <laughs> Um, The practice of identifying a distinct developmental period in a human's life as childhood is relatively recent, and today, childhood is universally acknowledged as a precious and vital stage within the lifespan of a human. It is seen as an important period of physical growth, mental and emotional learning, and development. It is also a time in which children should live free from fear, safe from violence and abuse, um, although it ideally... That should be all times. You'd think, yeah. But it's very important. For children. In childhood, yes. Attitudes toward children and the way in which we interact, engage, and care for them have changed dramatically over the previous 500 years. Along with that, the way we see children and childhood in the past continues to change in archaeology and anthropology. French social historian Philippe Arias, who was working in the 60s and 70s. Yeah, the 1960s and 70s. CE, CE yes. Uh, made the claim that in medieval society, the idea of childhood did not exist. He believed that children and adults existed alongside each other, that they worked and lived together, and for boys and men were educated together with no distinction between adult and child. Um, so I guess we can blame him and Aristotle for this idea. Yeah. Um, so Philippe Arias argued that childhood was discovered as a distinct and special phase of life in the 17th century. (laughs) See? Just like women were discovered in the 1970s. Yeah. 
Several factors led to this belief, one of which was a rise in affection and attention being paid to children, producing a kind of culture of childhood, a newfound interest in children. Children were seen as innocent and ignorant. The English philosopher John Locke, following Aristotle's sandals, believed that children's minds were a blank slate and that it was the role of the parents to fill it by experience or education. So, in terms of interpreting the archaeological record and a theoretical framework behind that interpretation, this is where we're starting out. As of the 1960s, the Western philosophical slash psychological view stated that children are tiny adults and childhood in the past didn't really exist in the way it does today. Uh, so they really were like those like terrifying paintings that you see in Beaux Art Museums. Of we just, like, will get there. Okay, great. Yeah, <laughs> just little, just weird little, little weirdly proportioned tiny humans. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you were working under the assumption that this wasn't something that existed, you're not going to look for it. So it's no wonder that evidence was lacking. Yeah, that's how that works. So before we move on in time and talk about how interpretation and perception of the archaeological record has changed since then, spoilers, it's changed, let's take a moment to do a quick level set about cultural relativism. And this is a foundational concept in anthropology. And so cultural relativism is the ability to understand a culture on its own terms and not to make judgments using the standards of one's own culture. Using the perspective of cultural relativism leads to the view that no single culture is superior to another culture when compared to systems of morality, law, politics, etc. It's also the concept that cultural norms and values and ideas like, is childhood a thing, derive their meaning within a specific social context. And so this applies both to cultures sort of across geographical space, but also across time. So you need to have sort of temporal cultural relativism as well. And so this is something that's become much more prevalent in the examination of history and archaeology in the past few decades. Okay, now that everybody is on the same page, let's get medieval again. Mm. Anyone familiar with medieval European art might be excused for thinking that people at that time were unaware of children, or at least unaware of how to paint them, judging by every image I've ever seen of medieval babies as tiny heads on weirdly elongated but also tiny adult bodies. We'll have a link. But if you're not familiar, do a quick Google image search, and it's very silly. But is that perception of medieval children accurate? So I'm pulling here from two articles on ThoughtCo from 2017 and 2019, kind of excerpted as as makes sense. Yes. Is there a chance that the artists like had not met a baby? I like, can't, is it, I can't say for certain because I don't have a time machine, but they, well, no, no. It Cause had like you more think to about do like with stylism then. Oh yeah. They're like, well, you know, I would love to draw your, your baby looking like an actual baby, but because you see Renaissance tacky. paintings, you know, in like medieval kind of bleeding into the Renaissance. You see Renaissance era paintings of infants that have this same weird adult head on a baby, like weirdly shrunken adult. But then you have artists like Da Vinci who are painting or drawing accurate, you know, life drawings of people in all stages yeah. of life. So like it was more a stylistic choice than, okay. it, I mean, I'm sure some of it had to do with the limitation on the skills of the painter, but I think they would have seen a baby. You know, I, th- I think about like 
people who were drawing like tigers that had only seen house cats. And so they're just like, I'm going with it. And so just thinking about like, you know. I would argue that in medieval Europe, babies were more common than tigers. So the chance of a painter seeing them <laughs> would have been higher. But I mean, I'm no statistician. So pulling from, <laughs> pulling from a thought co. Perhaps no other period of history has more misconceptions associated with it than the Middle Ages. The history of childhood is also full of misconceptions. Ah, a perfect storm. Recent scholarship has illuminated the lives of medieval children as never before, dispelling many of these misconceptions and replacing them with verifiable facts about life for the medieval child. Is this article saying misconceptions so many times is like a pun about conception? I don't think that's intentional. Okay. I think it's just lack of thesaurus. Of all the misconceptions about the Middle Ages, some of the most difficult to overcome involve life for medieval children and their place in society. It's a popular notion that there was no recognition of childhood in medieval society, and children were treated like miniature adults as soon as they could walk and talk. One of the most frequently mentioned arguments for the non-existence of childhood in the Middle Ages is that the representation of children in medieval artwork depicts them in adult clothing. If they wore grown-up clothes, the theory goes, they must have been expected to behave like grown-ups. However, while there certainly isn't a great deal of medieval artwork that depicted children other than the Christ child, the examples that survive do not universally display them in adult garb. Additionally, medieval laws existed to protect the rights of orphans. For example, in medieval London, laws were careful to place an orphan child with someone who could not benefit from his or her death. Also, medieval medicine approached the treatment of children separately from adults. In general, children were recognized as vulnerable and in need of special protection. And so the use of things like law and medicinal doctrine to kind of provide a counterargument to art, that's really important here because we've, we've mentioned this before, but the idea of art from a particular culture or time, whether it's actually presenting how people actually thought about a certain concept like childhood or children, you can't simply look to the art to sort of explain that as a reality of life. So speaking of special protection for children, here's another example of children's lives in context, this time from much farther back in history. And so this comes from the conversation. Texts from the Hebrew Bible and Mesopotamia relate that when women had trouble conceiving, they might use plants like the mandrake known to increase fertility or prepare fertility aids, and so this indicates that children were desirable. After children were born, women continued turning to magico-religious practices to protect the child. Scholars believe fertility figurines found in archaeological contexts attest to mothers' prayers for ample milk supply. Most women would nurse on demand, but breastfeeding contracts tell us that the wealthiest families could afford to employ wet nurses, since even they knew breastfeeding could limit fertility. Mesopotamian texts contain an intricate series of contracts and laws outlining the years children spent in the wet nurse's house and the consequences if the wet nurse tried to steal the child. These contractual forms are embedded in later biblical stories. So this idea that children were sort of disregarded or sort of not seen in the past is contradicted yeah. by these laws. Yeah. And so the the idea of like breastfeeding can limit fertility. This is, it isn't it common that like breastfeeding sort of like suppresses ovulation because yeah. your body is focusing on feeding one thing at a time, like yeah. pre weaned infant. Mm -hmm. And so is that the limiting fertility is like 
as long as I am breastfeeding, I cannot get pregnant again. And so you would, right. So you pass you off your have child like lengthy too. periods of before weaning the child, it would, you would have someone else. So that your specific ability to bear a child yeah. is not impacted. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So is that what that, that's a reference to? I think so. Yeah. Okay. The sleepless child was well known to parents. In the ancient world, lullabies were used to calm inconsolable infants. For example, in one old Babylonian lullaby written sometime between 1894 and 1595 BCE, the sleep-deprived mother begs the child to fall asleep like one passed out drunk. But sleep, while desired, also brought with it danger. Scholars believe that what we know today as sudden infant death syndrome was attributed by the ancient people in this region to the demoness Lilith, or as we've mentioned before, Lamashtu, creeping in the house and suckling the infant with poisonous milk. Various amulets warding off this demoness have been found in sleeping chambers, along with a lamp, which like today helped scare away bad things that went bump in the night. Little, little nightlight. Play was an important part of life in this part of the world and at this time. Small perforated discs found in some parts of the region suggest the use of spinning tops. Mesopotamian texts speak of familiar games like jump rope, wrestling, running races, and games of hide and seek. So we'll talk more about children at play in the past a bit later on in the episode. But for now, let's take a quick ad break and then we will fire up the time machine and see how far back we can find children. It's Chris Webster again. If you haven't checked out our new parent website, culturomedia.com, then please do. Culturo is spelled K-U-L-T-U-R-O, and it's where we promote all of our live events. We've got one coming up in November. Check it out over at Culturo when it gets posted. If it's already happened and you're hearing this, then as a member, you can go to your member pages and see the event recording. Our live events are always free, but you have to show up during the event to see it. So that's culturomedia.com for all our live events and more. Culturomedia.com. Chris Webster here, founder of the APN and host of several shows. I just wanted to let you know about our membership program and what it offers. Members of the APN get, for just $7.99 a month or cheaper if you pay for the year, ad-free episodes so you don't have to listen to me on the breaks, membership in our Slack team so you can continue the conversation with hosts and other members, and exclusive access to any of our live event recordings. Live events are always free, but you only get to watch the recording if you're a member. So head over to arcpodnet.com slash members for more info and to become a member. Our podcasts are always free, but this is just a little something extra and it really helps us out. That's arcpodnet.com slash members. We're back and we're looking for children. (laughs) Uh, You made it weird. You made it weird. (laughs) So we're going to see how far back into the past we can get a glimpse of the lives of children. Uh, How far? How far back? Mm -hmm. Well, for one thing, we can go back so far that there were other humans besides Homo sapiens bopping around. That's right. Neanderthals had children too. I know this gives you the the heebie-jeebies, but... I know. I'm I'm working through it. Um, So, little, little side note. If you want to learn more about this and think more about this... Uh, there is a wonderful section based on this research in the book Kindred, mm-hmm. uh, the author of which uh, we've chatted with before. So uh, Rebecca Rags Sykes. And so this th- that I will now tell you <laughs> um, is from a study published in 2019 in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences with additional material from an Australian Broadcasting Corporation, Corporation. Um, article on the publication. Mm-hmm. 
A team of archaeologists analyzed 257 footprints discovered at Le Rogel. Ouais, Le Rogel. Le Rogel on the coast of Normandy. They found the footprints belonged to a group of between 10 and 14 individuals, most of whom were children, including a two-year-old. Uh, Jeremy Duval of the French National Museum of Natural History said, quote, it was incredible to observe these tracks, which represent moments in the lives of individuals, sometimes very young, who lived 80,000 years ago, end quote. Uh, the footprints were made on a sand dune a couple of kilometers from the sea around 35,000 years before our species, Homo sapiens, is thought to have arrived in this part of Europe. Although no skeletal remains have been found at the Le Rouges site, Dr. Duveau said that the shape of the footprints was consistent with what we know about the anatomy of Neanderthals, gleaned from remains found at other sites. Um, Duo said, quote, they are relatively broader, especially in the midfoot, than the footprints made by Homo sapiens, which corresponds to a more robust foot and a less pronounced arch. End quote. The footprints were also found alongside many flaked stone tools crafted using the distinctive Mousterian style that has been associated with Neanderthals. Paleoanthropologist Eric Trinkhaus of Washington University said the large number of young people suggest this group was thriving even at the northern limits of their territory, saying, quote, it goes against the idea of the Neanderthals as barely eking it out in the frozen wastes of glacial Europe and rather portrays them as well-surviving people that even took time out on the beach. Although, <laughs> as, as lovely as that thought from... Uh, drink house is um we'll have another article linked in the show notes that has evidence that sometimes neanderthal children had it pretty tough too yeah the title of the article is something like neanderthal children shivered and suffered during glacial phases yeah i know it's really dramatic yeah you know two sides two sides of the argument i guess um was terrible it was great i mean depends where you were and when i guess if you were at le roselle great pretty nice yeah and so here's another set of footprints that tells us a story about prehistoric childhood, this time from much, much earlier, around 700,000 years ago. And this oh is a piece in the conversation written by researchers Matthew Bennett and Sally Reynolds, whose work this is. So it's them writing a, a popular piece about their own research, which I truly appreciate. Mm-hmm. So what about the childhood of our earlier ancestors, those that came before anatomically modern humans? or Homo sapiens. Children's tracks by Homo antecessor, 1.2 million to 800,000 years ago, were found at the site of Haysborough in East Anglia, a site dating to a million years ago. Sadly, though, these tracks leave no insight into what these children were doing. The footprints described in our recent study from a remarkable site in the upper Awash Valley of southern Ethiopia that was excavated by researchers from the Università di Roma, La Sapienza, reveal a bit more. The children's tracks were probably made by the extinct species Homo heidelbergensis, who was around 600,000 to 200,000 years ago, occurring next to adult prints and an abundance of animal tracks congregated around a small, muddy pool. Stone tools and the butchered remains of a hippo were also found at the site called Melka Conture. This assemblage of tracks is capped by an ash flow from a nearby volcano, which has been dated to 700,000 years ago. The ash flow was deposited shortly after the tracks were left, although we don't know precisely how soon after. The tracks are not as anatomically distinct as those from Namibia, but they are smaller. Uh, it was the 
tracks from Namibia were mentioned a bit earlier in this article. Mm. But they are smaller and may have been made by children as young as one or two standing in the mud while their parents and older siblings got on with their activities. This included napping the stone tools with which they butchered the carcass of the hippo. The findings create a unique and momentary insight into the world of a child long ago. They clearly were not left at home with a babysitter when the parents were hunting. In the harsh savanna plains of the East African Rift Valley, it was natural to bring your children to such daily tasks, perhaps, so they could observe and learn. So if we picture the scene at Melka Kunture, the children observing the butchery were probably allowed to handle stone tools and practice their skills on discarded pieces of carcass while staying out of the way of the fully occupied adults. This was their schoolroom, and the curriculum was the acquisition of survival skills. There was little time or space to simply be a child in the sense that we would recognize today. And so, Amber, this brings us back to a different version of the question that we asked at the beginning of the episode, not were children tiny adults, but did children have contributing roles in their social groups? Mm -hmm. And there are actually quite a few examples from the archaeological record from different places and times that suggest that much of ancient childhood was devoted to learning tasks that would later become adult responsibilities. And this isn't to suggest that childhood was all work and no play. We will get to playtime at the end, we promise. But some of this play may have had a learning function. So our first example, which is actually several examples altogether, comes from a publication in Nature that suggests that children were often skilled laborers in the past. Recent work suggests that some prehistoric youngsters toiled in harsh environments, including mines. Researchers excavating the ancient salt mines of Hallstatt, Austria, have discovered a child-sized leather cap dated to 1000 to 1300 BCE, along with very small mining picks, says archaeologist Hans Reschreiter at the National History Museum of Vienna. This suggests that children were working in these mines at least two centuries earlier than scientists had thought. I can't believe no one made a, a Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs reference in this article, but I guess they're professionals. Hmm. To confirm this, Reschreiter and his colleagues planned to test the heaps of human excrement found in the Bronze Age section of the mine for sex hormones, which younger children would lack. Ah, uh, puberty. But ancient child labor wasn't always so backbreaking. When archaeologist Mélie Leroy analyzed a jumble of skeletal remains from prehistoric tombs in France, she found three baby teeth with cylindrical grooves like across the teeth. Such abrasions form when people use their teeth for repeated forceful stretching and softening of animal tendon or plant material. The material was probably used for sewing or making baskets. And so repeatedly stretching a material across your teeth, using your teeth as a tool, leaves grooves across the teeth. So when these individuals lost their baby teeth, they came with those marks on them. The teeth belong to two children between the ages of one and nine. They date to 2100 to 3500 BCE, making them among the oldest evidence for children engaged in skilled labor. Leroy is about to start surveying human remains from more than 30 French burial sites from the same time period and expects to find more evidence of young children at work. Other researchers are looking to artifacts rather than skeletons for information on child labor. When archaeologist Stephen Dorland at the University of Toronto, Canada, examined ceramic shards from a prehistoric village in what is now southern Canada, he saw minuscule fingernail marks in the 15th century debris. The size of the indentations showed that the kids aged six or younger were forming clay vessels, which are little fingers. Even after the advent of written records, which can document the presence of youngsters in the workforce, but side note, might not, 
archaeological evidence can provide powerful illumination of the role of children. Bricks and roof tiles excavated from a Lithuanian castle dated to between the 13th and 17th centuries CE still bear the fingerprints of their young creators. Analysis of the prints' ridges suggests that children between the ages of 8 and 13 made more than 10% of the recovered building materials. Of a whole castle. That's a lot. Wow. So let's zoom back in time again, this time to a site we mentioned briefly in our live episode, the site being Kesem Cave in what is today Israel. Archaeologists have found evidence there that 400,000 years ago, children were learning to make stone tools from adults. They're learning from adults. They're not making stone tools out of adults. Correct. Okay. And four years ago, when this article was written, author Ariel David made some truly wretched puns. Wow. It's Uh, not even my fault this time. The title of the piece is 400,000-year-old school of rock found in prehistoric cave in Israel. Then under the heading, now you try this, Augie. Because every cave human has to be named some form of grunt, Og, Augie. There was an Og in the Bible. Og and Magog. Or is it Gog and Magog? It's Gog and Magog. Oops. Okay. <laughs> Perhaps I had been victim of a pun like that as a child. Um, Perhaps. David writes, quote, Among the most telling finds are flint cores that show signs of having been used by multiple people, some of whom were clearly highly skilled, while others were just beginners. Cores are pieces of flint that were first shaped into specific forms according to the desired tool and were then struck to detach flakes that formed the tool itself, a blade, a scraper, a spear point, and so on. A skilled knapper. Knapper. Could knapper? No, no, no. I'm, I'm not saying you should pronounce it like that. I'm saying that this word <laughs> has a K at the front. Uh, a skilled knapper could detach multiple tools from the same core, peeling layer after layer from the stone in a sort of prehistoric version of mass production. Many of the cores at Kasim, so-called shared cores, display mixed results, archaeologist Ella Asaf says. On the same stone, she can point to clean scars left by a perfectly detached flake, as well as multiple signs of breakages, mistakes, and failures. She says, quote, if it were just one mistake, we wouldn't know since we even experienced nappers made mistakes. But if I see repeated errors, I can think that it was someone else, two different hands that napped the same core. End quote. This is extraordinary because, for one thing, good flint was not readily available at Kasem. Researchers have found the precious raw material had to be quarried and transported from sites that were between 5 to 15 kilometers away. The most likely explanation for this phenomenon is that it was part of a teaching process to help children learn napping skills. <laughs> well, and, and here, Ariel David missed the opportunity to talk about children and, and make a nap time joke. So, you know, Pobody's nerfed. <laughs> yeah. We've got one more example, this time from the slightly more recent past of North America. And our Patreon subscribers might find this one familiar from a while back. We, we covered it before on an episode of Old News. And this, this comes from Smithsonian Magazine. In the 1960s, archaeologists discovered a trove of ancient artifacts along the northern coast of Oregon, an area once occupied by Chinookan and Salish-speaking populations. The site, known as Par-Ti, boasted a shell midden, or sizable heap of shells, bones, utensils, and other miscellaneous objects that contained some 7,000 tools dated to between 100 and 800 CE. 
Robert Losey and Emily Hull, both researchers at Canada's University of Alberta, recently decided to take a closer look at some of the party artifacts, many of which are housed at the Smithsonian's National Museum of Natural History in Washington, D.C. They focus their attention on atlatls, tools that let ancient humans propel spears and darts with increased accuracy. These particular examples were made from whalebone. Losey and Hull noticed that some of these implements were quite small, too small, in fact, to have fit in adult hands. From an early age, in other words, ancient Native Americans were learning how to hunt and fight. Before the advent of the bow and arrow, atlatls were one of the most ubiquitous means of hurling projectiles. These devices, which had a grip at one end and a hook for a dart at the other, kind of like those uh, things you use to throw a, a ball for your dog if you want to throw it extra the far. It. Yeah, the chuck it. Um, so those they help increase both the range and force of a weapon. But they weren't easy to use, unlike the chuck it, arguably. Oh, wow. I mean... I chucked it like oh it's it's the same I had the same problems I had with the um clay the clay pigeon. Oh yeah, yeah that you that you mm-hmm. throw and you're supposed to, you can like it's like a little snapping motion. Mm-hmm. It's and all I on just the wrist. kept throwing them straight into the ground. No. And just like pull, smack. You would have <laughs> just like every time failed at level school, <laughs> I guess. Yeah. Uh, it's even worse. Operators had to apply <laughs> torque as the dart was released from the hand. Also, since atlatls were not as accurate as bows, hunting with the instrument likely required the coordination of multiple individuals. So you'd want to make sure you were accurate enough with the tool to hit your prey and not your friends. So the study authors write, quote, the ability to operate such weapons effectively was a critical skill, but not a simple one to master. Proficient atlatl users probably would have had greater success in hunting than those less skilled with the atlatl, resulting in dietary and social advantages for themselves and their community. Such individuals might also be more successful in warfare and self-defense, end quote. Hey, I'm great at self-defense if it involves throwing a clay target at you. And if I'm also like 18 inches away from me. (laughs) Lying on the ground. (laughs) If I'm attacking you by lying on the ground and staying still. (laughs) What if I'm just like lying on the ground and heckling you and then you can throw a clay pigeon at me? Yes. Great. It makes sense, therefore, that atlatl training started young among the people who dwelled along Oregon's coast. When the researchers examined the Parti Hall, they found that the largest atlatl was 166 times bigger than the smallest one, a difference too large to be explained by normal hand size variation among adults or even between men and women. The mini atlatls thus offer compelling evidence that the tools were deliberately scaled down for little hands. For the tiny adults in the paintings? (laughs) They they were all using atlatls. Yeah. So let's take one more ad break. I know it's very sweet, especially, especially the tiny fingernail marks on the ceramics and the, uh, gosh, this is wonderful. Yeah. So let's take one more quick ad break and then head out to recess. This is Chris Webster with the APN. I'm also a project manager for several industries. I wouldn't be able to keep on track with really anything if it wasn't for Motion. With Motion, I just say what I need to do, how long I think it will take, what sort of priority I think it has, and Motion builds my day for me. It'll even build in breaks because, let's be honest, it's hard to remember to stop to eat lunch sometimes. So head over to arcpodnet.com motion for a free trial and a discount if you sign up. You'll kick back a small amount to the APN if you do. That's arcpodnet.com motion. Hey, 
Hey, fans of APN Podcasts, we've got lots of designs over at our Tee Public store. Every purchase helps out the APN with a few cents back to us. Check out the high-quality T-shirts, stickers, phone cases, coffee mugs, and a lot more. There are lots of colors to choose from in most of those items, and Tee Public often runs 30% discounts. So check out the store at arcpodnet.com slash shop. That's arcpodnet.com slash shop, and click on the link. We're back, and we're ready to play. Yay. We're acting on the assumption that you, our listeners, have all been children at one point or another, or our children now. Yeah, get them young. Welcome to anthropology and archaeology. And are well aware that child's play doesn't always come with physical objects. Kids will often play with ephemeral objects like a stick or mud or simply the imagination, none of which survive well in the archaeological record. But we do have evidence of playthings. Or do we? We do might. We, we mm-hmm. might. Do we? do we? Let's find out. This comes from Discover Magazine. And I, I love what the author's done here. Imagine strolling through a forest. Sunlight beams through deciduous branches. Birds chirp and trill. Squirrels scurry. Damp soil pads your footsteps. You know, idyllic mm. forest stuff. You come across a rock overhang and decide to rest. But in that secluded nook sits a crudely carved wooden figurine with a lion's head and human torso, surrounded by a ring of smooth gray pebbles. Dun, dun, dun. That's, that was not me. That was written in there. I was obligated to do that. What have you stumbled upon? The leftovers of some occult ceremony or just a place where children play? The Manimal's Lair. The Manimal's Lair. Check out our Dirt After Dark on combined human and animal figures from yeah, the was, past. That was, a, that was a deep cut. Was it? It was deep cut. Someday I'll I will get know this. the difference. Someday I'll get this right. No, I just, I just work here. <laughs> The scenario mirrors a real-life conundrum archaeologists face when examining ancient remains, how to distinguish adult rituals from children's play. In the past and today, the behaviors leave similar material traces. They often involve miniatures, like effigies or dolls, carefully arranged, perhaps on an altar or a make-believe tea party table. Both create unusual patterns of debris, distinct from everyday acts like tool-making and food preparation. And rituals and play generally occur in peripheral spaces so as not to be underfoot. When confronting enigmatic finds, researchers traditionally assumed ritual was the cause and did not consider kids' play. There's even a joke among archaeologists. If you can't explain some discovery, like a painted bear skull or a pile of colorful stones, say, it's ritual. But over the past few decades, scholars have taken more interest in ancient children and developed methods to identify their marks, traces left from kids' labor, learning, and play. In a 2018 current anthropology paper, Australia-based archaeologists Michelle Langley and Mirani Litster outlined ways child's play has likely been misinterpreted as adult ritual. Their argument was based on ethnographic observations of many recent hunter-gatherer children Kids in these communities lead lives more similar to past peoples than do kids in industrialized societies. But again, see our episode on hunter-gatherer groups to think about some of the pitfalls of extrapolating from one group to the other. Yeah. The review showed that youngsters worldwide tend to play with miniature versions of tools they'll handle as adults in that culture, like hunting bows and fishing gear or atletals. They also favor figurines or dolls representing animals and people, again, often to act out situations kids could encounter as grown-ups. Based on these observations, numerous archaeological cases of ritual items may well have been toys. 
For example, dozens of clay figurines, crudely pinched into four-legged creatures, were recovered from Near Eastern sites roughly 8,000 years old. Earlier researchers wrote the possibility these artifacts were children's toys, quote, cannot totally be ruled out, end quote. But they concluded it's most likely the animal-like figurines were used during magical ceremonies preceding hunts. Langley and Lidster contend the toy hypothesis should not be dismissed. Similarly, archaeologists unearthed animal figurines made from split twigs scattered across roughly 2,000-year-old sites in the southwestern United States. Originally thought to be for hunting rituals, the artifacts were later considered possible toys after three, resembling two deer and a duck, were discovered in a child burial from the period. Oh. Yeah, it's very sweet and very sad. Oh, that's heartbreaking. I know. Well... Probably the most convincing example concerns clay animal figurines and vessels from roughly 800-year-old Native American sites in what's today Arizona. In the 1990s, Grinnell College archaeologist Catherine Camp identified many child-sized fingerprints imprinted on the artifacts, proving kids at least made them or touched them while they were wet. <laughs> yeah. What's this? Touch, 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 touch. Yeah. Poke. In a 2010 antiquity study, researchers proposed the items worked like thaumatropes. These toys, popular in the 1800s, were wooden discs decorated on either side by images and affixed to strings. Pulling the cords rapidly spun the disc, causing the images to blur and appear animated like a flip book. So this is like when you've got like a bird on one side and a cage on the other. And you like pull the string and the bird, the bird is inside the cage. Like a little bit like that. It. But in this case, it's more like the bird with wings up in one on one side and wings down on the other. And when you spin it, it looks like the wings are okay. flapping. Yeah. Okay. The thaumatrope hypothesis was especially inspired by one lovely rondelle discovered in a French cave in 1868. It's one from the Paleolithic. A- Sorry, I should, I should, I should specify. Uh, the article didn't say, but this disc was from the Paleolithic. Okay. Yeah. So one face shows a doe or goat-like creature standing profile. No, just standing. Just just standing. (laughs) I don't know. Uh, The flip side has the same animal with legs tucked. Like a loaf? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Little goat loaf? Yep, little goat loaf. Researchers crafted a replica and spun it on a string made of tendon. The creature appeared to move, running with a springing gait, according to one interpretation, or falling dead, according to another. (laughs) You know. For kids. Yeah. Like kids do. Yeah. Where's my dead goat toy? And that's kind of, that's fun. Yeah. And I've included a link in the show notes to make your own at home. You can, oh. you can make your own thaumatrope. Great. Yeah. So we'll have a link so you can do that. Mm-hmm. Well, know what I'm doing this weekend. So sorted with that listeners, we'll wrap up this episode. We hope that we've shown that childhood can mean many different things depending on cultural context. Child's play seems to be pretty universal, though what that play looks like and how it's maybe connected to learning tasks that will become important later in life differ in time and place. What we hope we've shown, especially though, is that the idea of children being invisible or not valued doesn't seem to be the case in any society. No matter where or when you are in the human story, there is evidence that children were special and important to their family groups in order and to the wider social groups as well. Yeah. And so we've seen evidence from not only the archaeological record, but later when there is historical record, we've seen evidence of laws written specifically to protect children and, you know, historical records of children being born and sort of cared for in various ways and provided for in various ways. So there's lots of resources that 
go beyond sort of what you see in, you know, medieval paintings where it's weird old man baby. Yeah. And then also thinking of like getting past the idea that the evidence that we see of children sort of learning how to do things that will be jobs mm-hmm. um, as sort of like you aren't trying to like extract labor out of children. Like this is something that no, can be sort of like fun and yeah. learning and which makes me I saw something recently that chilled me to my bones. Oh, dear. Um, but it was an image of a like a popular plastic toy manufacturer mm-hmm. who had done a like work from home toy for toddlers no and it was a, a laptop Work and like home like little, mommy does a little fake coffee and a little headset Oof, and, and it was just like and so it's something That's to tough. think about yeah, I, think that, truly. I thought about i thought about that several times throughout this episode and just thinking about sort of toys and like toys mm-hmm. toys that correlate with work right and and, and, and thinking about like yeah and and that this is something that like little ones today can like mirror adults in their lives. Well, and, um, and we, ha- we didn't even sort of get into any kind of gendered aspect, but you know, you can go back to the 1950s and sixties and you very much see, you know, little kitchen sets for girls and. Oh, I had know, one. Well, yeah. But yeah, like it's just something that just like the idea like that you do what mommy does play. and yeah. Yeah. Mirroring what your respective role model in the household does. Um, yeah, I mean, that's a whole nother episode, but um, just the idea of learning to do things that will become important later in life doesn't necessarily, as you said, mean labor. You can teach a child how to do something and make it fun. Yeah. We hope you do. <laughs> Man, I miss childhood. Well, <laughs> thank you, as always, listeners, for listening. And we will be back in your ears soon with new episodes, which you can find on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, or wherever else you like to listen. And if you haven't done this yet, please leave us some stars and a review on Apple Podcasts. And it it really, really helps the show a lot. Helps people find us. Yeah. Um, And you can also find us out on the social media, where we post interesting archaeology stories, the occasional joke, and maybe a pet photo or two, or perhaps photos of ourselves, the children. Mm-hmm. we were both real real cute kids we were very cute children um so on facebook we're the dirt podcast on twitter we're at dirt podcast and on instagram we're at the dirt pod mm-hmm. and all of that together with merch our syllabus for educators the link to sponsor episodes thanks mom and more is at our website the thanks everybody i love you i love you mom Bye. Bye. This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV Traveling America, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, and the Archaeology Podcast Network. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Please consider leaving a review on your favorite podcasting app. You could also consider becoming a member so we can keep content like this free and available to all. Check out pricing and info at archpodnet.com slash members. Thanks again and have a great day.